Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. A remarkable development in the contentious debate over nicotine vaping happened just recently. A group of influential tobacco control experts authored a paper published in the American Journal of Public Health calling on the broader health community, policymakers, and the media to reevaluate and reform their positions on vaping in order to more carefully weigh vaping's potential as a tool to reduce adult smoking-related disease and death. Joining us today to discuss the paper and its intended impact is Dr. Robin Bermelstein, Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Director of the Institute for Health Research and Policy at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and she's also the chair of FDA's Tobacco Product Scientific Advisory Committee. Dr. Mermelstein, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Thanks for having me. Now, this paper we're discussing today, Balancing Consideration of the Risks and Benefits of E-Cigarettes, it's notable for many reasons, which we'll get into, but the big one being that it's authored by 15 past presidents of the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco, and of course, you're one of these past presidents. First off, what is the SRNT? And please share with our viewers some more info on your background and research. The SRNT is the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco, which is really the premier research society to advocate for advancing good science and a strong evidence base for reducing a lot of the toll and the harms from tobacco and potentially from nicotine as well. So it's really meant to advocate for the public good. Dr. Mermelstein, so this paper really is a very big deal. 15 past presidents, Dr. Kenneth Warner, being one of them, Professor Emeritus at the University of Michigan, who we had on this show last summer. He's the lead author on the paper, and with yourself and 13 others, that's over two-thirds of the past presidents of the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco sharing the byline on this paper. Big deal. It's a big deal, first of all, to get what we hope are the thought leaders and very credible voices coming together to help both knowledgeable public people who are in the health field to understand the controversy and to take a fresh perspective. There's so much information out there and it can be confusing. We, we get bombarded with information. And there's also been a clear bias in the media to over-represent a lot of the studies and the concerns with youth and to forget about the adult smokers. So our hope was to again, remind people of the enormous toll of smoking and the immediate crisis, which is to try to help smokers stop smoking and reduce their death and disability. And that's what all of us came together and said, somehow the balance has been lost. And we wanna reassert and get people to remember that there are multiple issues here and to be more thoughtful about how they consume that information. That's fascinating. Now, many supporters of safer nicotine products have praised the paper. They've said it's remarkable, it's rare, it's astounding. You know, why do you think that is that they're coming up with those characterizations? I think we took a very fair approach to evaluating what are the big questions about e-cigarettes. Are they good or are they bad? Rarely is something so black and white, but people think about them in terms of the concerns about youth vaping, which had obviously not been a problem more than a decade ago and then suddenly became a huge concern. And then how do you balance that with a potential benefit? Or does this product help people stop smoking, adult smokers? So try to lay out what the big questions were, what the evidence is, and to be more realistic about 
not saying that there are absolutely no harms. There may be some harms associated with e-cigarettes, but their relative harm is so much less, both for youth and for adults, and to just to remember that perspective. So as stated in the first line of the paper, and I'll put the quote up here on screen for the viewers, use of nicotine-containing electronic or e-cigarettes has divided the tobacco control community along a spectrum from fervent opponents to enthusiastic supporters. Let me ask you, you know, do you think it's, it would be a surprise for many in the public to learn, or maybe even the media or government for that matter, but would they be surprised to learn that there's such disagreement on these products with inside the tobacco control community? I think they would be surprised. And I, I think, first of all, this is by far what I see as the most divisive in issue that has hit the field. I've been involved in tobacco-related research for 30 years, so I can't remember a time when people have been so divided. I mean, passions have often been high about trying to help people stop smoking or trying to call the tobacco industry out for some of their behavior. But among the research community, rarely have there been two such strong camps with different perspectives. So that's unusual and trying to understand why that is and how do you make sense with both very credible researchers on both sides. Yeah, trying to tease out why there is this divide, what the disagreement is all about has been basically the focus of hours of our coverage over the past couple of years. We've got our thoughts on that. Why do you think there is, uh, you know, the divide? I wish there weren't this divide. I wish people could just be honest and say, look, nobody is saying we want kids to vape. But what we are saying is we want smokers to stop. I think those are two points of agreement. The disagreement comes with the notion that e-cigarettes could actually be a viable alternative to helping smokers, established smokers, stop smoking, give them what might be an appealing and a good option to try. We want to arm them with whatever they can to be most successful as fast as possible. And so the relative risks for adolescents might be quite small in comparison. We have to worry about you know, more than 450,000 Americans who die each year from smoking-related illnesses. And that's been an epidemic. That's really truly is the epidemic, is it not? That's totally the epidemic. And until the unfortunate pandemic of, of COVID-19, where we've now exceeded those, those figures, people weren't shocked. Now they're shocked when 400,000 people die, but they forget that smoking is still going to be contributing to that excessive early death, far more so than COVID might be over time. So could, could the summary of the main message of your paper be boiled down to an endorsement of harm reduction benefits for vaping? I think we are saying that there are overall some good benefits for adult smokers who are interested in quitting smoking. And what we're basically saying is that our primary goal is to help adult, help smokers of combustible cigarettes stop smoking. And if one way to do that is through e-cigarettes, they, you know, many smokers, you know, you have to understand that quitting smoking is really tough. And smokers often want to quit and they're just discouraged. They've tried, they can't do it. 
And smoking is something that often gives them pleasure. So to be able to not, you know, struggle and then lose a pleasure, this is a tough road for people. Um, it's not a matter of a lack of willpower. That's not at all the issue or that somehow they can't, but it's really a matter of giving them the tools to help them quit. So why not give an effective tool like e-cigarettes? And what's good is that more and more data from a whole bunch of different kinds of studies are starting to come out now to show that e-cigarettes may give that benefit, may be more effective than traditional nicotine replacement therapy, for example, that it could work and it could have efficacy. And not only that, smokers seem to want to try them to help them to quit. So that's often a, hu a huge hurdle, is that a, how do you get a smoker willing to say, okay, I'll give that a shot. Now, all that sounds uh, very well and good, Dr. Mermelstein, but how do you convince the policymakers and those in public health that control the conduit to the media to, uh, to have that same message? Policymakers appropriately are concerned about kids, and kids have a lot of appeal. So nobody wants to argue against protecting kids, and that's a very popular stance. And they tend to forget about adult smokers. And sometimes, unfortunately, that may be because adult smokers are more and more disenfranchised, that they are often, you know, people who may not have as much status as non-smokers, that there's sometimes people who have a variety of other comorbidities. So they're just not that vocal advocacy, advocacy group. Um, you know, when you think about adult diseases, whether it's cancer or heart disease or diabetes, we have advocacy groups. We don't have too many advocacy groups to help people stop smoking. You know, the, the sad news is smokers die and we don't have a whole lot of, of survivors to come back and argue for saying, I wish we had some more effective techniques to help me quit sooner. Um, so they're just often easier to ignore than kids. Everyone wants to help kids. So it's just helping policymakers to remember there are these other really important parts. You know, one out of seven people still smoke. That's a large number. Let me ask you about some of the specifics around the risks of vaping. There are some real risks and there are some perceived risks that have kind of been pushed out there uh, by opponents to vaping. What are those risks? And, and I get the sense that this paper does a fairly good job of countering some of those. So the, the risks, it's not I completely safe, but it is much, much safer than smoking a combustible cigarette. So the risks that people worry about are primarily that kids will become addicted to nicotine. And there, there are a couple of fears with that. One is the notion that if you're addicted to something, it's bad. Um, we, we tend to be a little puritanical in, in, in that sense. So um, many of us get, might be addicted to a variety of things, caffeine being one, for example, that's, that's, that's common. So one is just this notion that addiction is, is bad. Um, but the other concern is that if you have, you know, start with an e-cigarette that maybe it will progress you, that you'll look and move to smoking cigarettes. So there have been some studies that show that you have an increased risk as, as an adolescent, that if you start with an e-cig and you haven't smoked, that you might, you have a greater chance of smoking a cigarette. The more balanced perspective is saying, although that's true, the absolute numbers are, are very, very low. 
Um, so if you have twice the odds of something, but the odds are only half a percent, that means maybe only 1%. But twice the odds sounds big. So it's a matter of what's relative versus absolute, absolute risk. And what we don't know is that these may have been kids who would have been trying smoking anyway. What we think of as what are called shared vulnerabilities that predispose you to do both. Um, so the notion that one is a automatic gateway, that as soon as you open that one door, you're down a path that you can't come back, is true for some people, but very few. And I think that's that's that perspective to think about. There's also the concern that you just don't want kids having exposure in, to chemicals in their brain and what that might do. And we, we just don't know, we don't have good evidence that there are damaging long-term effects, but um, people worry about those. If you were to look at the problems, like the challenges affecting um, tobacco harm reduction, safer nicotine products, it, I get the sense from the paper that really misinformation seems to be kind of the biggest issue. Where is that coming from and how do you fight it? Misinformation is a big issue. I think it's, again, taking out of perspective what the risks are. So if you have a study that e-cigarette use leads to combustible smoke because of some an odds ratio without appropriately putting in the right controls, um, that gets picked up because people look for the bad guys. They look for the story that this is what's bad for you. Um, we don't ever get that balance of, you know, it's not as sexy to say, hey, here's a great way to help you stop smoking. But it's it seems to have much broader appeal for, you know, media to be able to say, oh, here's another thing that we should get worried about with our kids and protect them. So I do think that um, people need to really think through the sources. And that's really what our hope is with this paper, is to say, look at all these past presidents. They've thoroughly read through, sifted through both sides of the argument to help you, the reader, really think through, you know, how do we understand this controversy? And our hope is that people realize it's a matter of balance. And we're not saying that e-cigarettes are 100% safe, but what we are saying is the balance, if you consider the risks, they're pretty minimal. They're not non-existent, but they're minimal in what their implications are compared to the potential public good of helping many, many smokers quit smoking. And that's, that's substantial. Our hope, again, is just the fact that, okay, you've got a dozen more than a dozen people coming together who've really tried to pull apart both sides and say, here's what we think are the takeaways. The takeaways are there's more and more credible and growing evidence that e-cigarettes might play a good role for harm reduction. And that's really what we, we wanna think about. And although there are concerns with youth and with teens, maybe those are not as big a concern as have, has been portrayed. So could vaping save, save lives is a question. I think vaping could potentially save lives of adult smokers. If you find something that's appealing and e-cigarettes may be an appealing, accessible way for them to finally give up completely their cigarettes, that would be great.
that would be a beautiful end goal. I mean, I think despite the controversy in the field, everyone agrees that we do want adult smokers to quit. Nobody, that's never been a disagreement. The disagreement comes with what are the approaches to help and is it okay? Do you have to have an absolute 100% risk-free, no nicotine, I mean, nicotine replacement therapy certainly keeps giving you nicotine um, way, or are there other risks? And why not add this approach to the battery of possible tools as well? Now, what's been the response uh, from some of your colleagues after the release of this paper? Well, obviously the people who are going to respond to me and perhaps my colleagues are ones that have been quite positive, very grateful to have gotten this out there. And people feel like, you know, it's okay for them to say, yeah, they agree. I think it's it's particularly challenging for younger people in the field who may be afraid to take a stance or not sure all our, our young new researchers who are coming up and trying to figure out, well, how do they take a position here? So I think it's been reassuring to them to, to see this thoughtful balance. Now, is there a kind of a sense that there was strength in numbers uh, with regards to bringing all of you together under one byline? I think that's certainly the case. I think we had a really good, rigorous discussion that went into this paper. It took all of us sort of critiquing and thinking and challenging, you know, line by line. It was truly a group effort and benefited by good consensus and discussion and people having a good internal debate and feeling very comfortable. Everyone signed off, everyone read, everyone contributed. That's amazing. It's remarkable. So what about flavors? It's such a hard topic because they seem to be very important for vapors. And yet, you know, look at Canada. They're about to unwind their legalization of vaping with a nationwide flavor ban in the U.S. We have flavor bans that have happened in several different jurisdictions. How important are flavors? Are they important? What's the scoop? Flavors are a big deal. And it's a good example of perhaps people wanting to have a quick fix and overreacting without seeing all the evidence and allowing the data. So the fear has been that flavors are the reason kids vape, that they want the multiple flavors, they think they're like candy or something sweet, and that's what's promoting. Certainly flavors increase the appeal. But what people didn't consider was that adult smokers might actually like some flavors too and that the flavors may be an important component to helping them stop smoking. So some of my own work, for example, which has looked at what's the role of flavors in, in helping combustible smokers switch and give up and quit completely, flavors seem to enhance the pleasure of the e-cigarettes and make it more appealing. And so there's been an association between the use of flavored e-cigs and an ability to quit. So. What we need to again do perhaps is just think about not cut back on options and not look for, you know, this is the one reason kids vape is because of flavors. It, it's not that simple. <laughs> it's not, you know, and so banning flavors may not be the way to prevent kid vaping and it might have that unintended consequence 
of reducing effectiveness of e-cigs in helping people to stop smoking. Yeah, and did we not, uh, was that not the result of Dr. Abigail Friedman's work in San Francisco, which showed that there was a correlation with flavor ban and an increase in teen uh, smoking? Is that not correct? Well, certainly uh, you don't want kids going back to smoking. And so if, if what you're doing is creating this fear, which I've actually heard from smokers, that initially they would consider going to e-cigs and then they believe that incorrectly that they were more dangerous than cigarettes and so they go back to smoking. That's exactly what we don't wanna happen. Similarly, we don't want kids to think, oh, well, this is bad, I might as well smoke my cigarette. Now, you make it clear, the authors of this paper, right up, up at the front of the abstract, basically call out that what's going on is that now, People either think that vaping is as dangerous or even more dangerous than smoking. What kind of a threat does that pose? Well, it's truthfully misinformation and a lot of just bad reporting from people in the sense of thinking that vaping is a horrible, horrible thing. So a lot of this got blown up with the Evali crisis and um, even the name of e-cigarette and vaping and, and lung injury, when it turns out that it really had nothing to do with nicotine cigarettes. Uh, and yet that put a lot of fear. And the reason it put fear is that young people were getting affected and potentially dying from it. And again, nobody wants to see a young person suffer like that and have those, those consequences. So that scared people and made people think, oh, well, e-cigarettes. And that was really a, a poor, poor misnaming of it, and not only in terms of turning people against e-cigarettes, but not even identifying the real culprit, which turned out to have been another constituent of vitamin E acetate and oils and not the nicotine. You mentioned Evali, and then of course before that was the epidemic of teen vaping, famously. Um, they seem to have destroyed what there was of virtues of vaping. If there were virtues of vaping, and for some time there, it looked, it was getting up to 2018, 2019, that there was starting to crack through the public that there was something good about vaping. That seems to have been effectively de destroyed. The virtues of vaping have been destroyed as a result of this stuff. Would you agree? I think that's very true in that we have not had in the last two years, and also COVID, obviously, took away attention from it too. Um, but that's true. We've, we've lost perspective about, okay, wait a minute. There's still some good here and something we can do. And right now, more than ever, we want people to quit smoking. The statement that, that nicotine harms developing brains is one of the most damaging statements to the virtues of vaping. Because if vaping exists out there, it has the potential to damage teens' brains because you can't keep the things necessarily out of the hands of teens 100%. Yes, so nicotine may well have acute changes in the brain in terms of it does clearly affect neurotransmitter functioning. Are there long-term problems in terms of what people worry about? Does it alter your executive function, your ability to concentrate, to have good judgments? Does it somehow make you more impulsive or make your choices different because of, of of altering um, parts of your, your thinking processes and those neurotransmitters. We can 
take several leaps and think, well, maybe it might. And there's some evidence that, you know, acutely and from animal models, you would make that. But in humans, we don't really have that evidence. Am I to understand then that there's no hard evidence in humans that nicotine does harm developing brains? We have good evidence from animal models that nicotine given to rats, basically, um, does alter responses and that there are, are effects Nicotine does alter neurotransmitters. Now, does it cause structural damage in the human brain or other effects? Um, you know, it's not exactly ethical to try that out in kids and expose them to nicotine and see what happens to their brains. So we, we can't do the appropriate, for good reasons, we can't do those studies. Right, but could we not, I mean, obviously, think back 50 years ago, 60 years ago, how prevalent was smoking in the population uh, amongst male and females, we're talking 40, 50, 60% in some cases, correct? Yes, certainly, you know, years ago. And if what you're going with that is thinking, have we brain damaged 50% of the adult population? Because they've been. That's right. We managed to put man on the moon and, and do all the other things we've done. What we do know from human studies is that nicotine may have some acute cognitive effects that could be beneficial in the moment. Might focus your attention, it might give you a bit of a mood boost, you might feel good. What we don't have evidence is for those long-term, are there long-term unique developmental problems from exposure to nicotine. All that means though, is that we wanna take seriously the problem of youth vaping. We don't wanna say, oh, we don't have the evidence, don't worry. What we wanna say instead is let's put appropriate controls and policies in place that are targeted. That's why the Tobacco 21 rules and policies are really good. They make it far less likely that a 15 year old is gonna have access than when they were much lower. So those are, are quite effective. We think about how are products advertised and marketed. So you can put restrictions on not marketing to kids and certain themes. We look to the UK where they have not had the youth vaping problem. And yet many, many adult smokers have turned to e-cigarettes to help them to stop smoking. So what's the difference between the UK and the United States? In part, it's how the products are marketed. In the UK, they're marketed more for that middle-aged smoker to help them quit smoking and not as the, the fun um, alternative for a kid. How can you restore the virtues of vaping without dialing back the demonization of nicotine and, and essentially normalizing recreational nicotine use? I think it goes in stages. The real virtue of vaping and e-cigarettes is a road off of cigarettes. That's what we're saying. We're not saying that people who've never smoked should just go pick it up. You know, when people do harm reduction, let's, let's talk about, you know, methadone. Nobody thinks about using methadone who hasn't been addicted to heroin opioids, right? But there's no problem about maintaining people on, on methadone. It's a harm reduction approach. Um, you know, and it's just sort of how it is perceived by people. Now, what we really want to think about is e-cigs have a really important role potentially in helping as harm reduction. That means something safer than combustible cigarettes. It doesn't mean a non-smoker, a never smoker should start doing it. So the whole harm reduction is where's your starting point? Our starting point is among adult smokers, we want them off that. We're not saying that 
anyone should just pick it up um, recreationally at this point. So are adult smokers then essentially invisible for all practical purposes? Well, I think they've become shunned often by people and people may be embarrassed to acknowledge that they smoke. Um, More and more there are restrictions. So yes, sometimes they're more invisible because you can't necessarily smoke in public or in buildings where you, you might be seeing more and more restrictions, which can be quite good because they can actually help promote people to to stop. But they're also make it less likely for a policymaker to think about them. Do you find that strange, though, however, because we do live in a, in a time when social justice is very much on the forefront of so many people's minds, and you would think that there would be a connection to that uh, with regard to the millions of smokers that still exist out there. It's very much a social justice issue because smokers are unfortunately overrepresented in certain minority groups who might have more damaging effects from smoking, um, especially among people of other comorbidities or mental health problems who may not be as educated. So I think they tend to be forgotten about and it really should be thinking through we don't want to be expending dollars on treating the illness we would like to prevent the illness it's a whole lot better um, to think about how do we prevent them from getting cancer than worrying about how do we treat the cancers you certainly obviously have a lot of experience uh working with the regulatory agencies being of course that you chair a very important committee with the fda in this on this matter what's your sense in terms of how the regulators you know, are handling this? I mean, are there some, is there some advice that you could give them, say on behalf of the group of authors for this paper? They have a tough job. They have all mountains and mountains and mountains of data that they are sifting through right now. And foremost, I think I've been extremely impressed by the thoroughness that they bring, that their ability to actually sort through and listen and get comments and get advice. So I I think that they're certainly cautious in what they're doing and moving forward. It would be nice to see some things move forward faster. Um, That's that's definitely the case, Um, but they have been flooded with working through a lot of applications that they've gotten right now for e-cigarettes. Yeah, the big deadline is coming up. I mean, let me ask you, what can I ask you uh, with regards to that? Is there anything that you can share, any insights or thoughts regarding the fact that the FDA is about to hopefully, uh, you know, deem at least a few products as being uh, in the interest appropriate for the interest of protecting the public health? Is that likely to happen? Yeah, I wish I had some inside scoop, but I have none. (laughs) and it's it's really unfortunately have no knowledge about what they what they might say they're they're pretty discreet and quiet about what they'll do until they decide to make their their final decision what is the end goal here like next steps end goal for the for this work the end goal is to get more people to quit smoking that's the true end goal and if that means that here is an available appealing way that adult smokers are willing to try and might use some coaching. It's not so easy to just switch on your own too, but if we were to put some concentrated effort 
into helping adults switch completely. That's the goal. And hopefully then they can give up even vaping. But if not, we should accept that as a, as a harm reduction. So let's put some allowable work into here are strategies for how you give it up, how you switch completely, and then what might be your next step from after that.